Hello, baby. Want a kiss? Welcome to the Experimental Film Podcast with your host, Ken Hess. Teaching a parakeet to talk is fun, but the old method took too much time and patience. This record is specially designed to teach any healthy, normal parakeet to talk by using a scientific new method that is acknowledged to be far superior because a carefully trained voice, specially chosen for excellence in clarity and diction, repeats over and 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 over the same words, the same phrase, in a manner that most parakeets are most likely to imitate. Check experimentalfilm.info for information, interviews, and episodes. For the next few seconds, this record will be silent. This podcast is dedicated exclusively to experimental film and its makers. Welcome to Season 2, Episode 3 of the Experimental Film Podcast. Today's guest is filmmaker Daniel Hess. Daniel is a filmmaker who created the experimental film My Spirit Will Stay, starring Emily Klassen. Welcome to the Experimental Film Podcast, Daniel. Thank you for having me. It's a real pleasure. No problem. And yes, audience, you did hear that correctly. His name is Daniel Hess. I don't know if we're related. We may have to investigate that later. But for now, uh, Daniel, go ahead and start out by telling us a little bit about yourself and your work. Yeah, so uh, film has been an interesting journey in my life in that it's kind of been a slow trickle for me. Uh, I sort of got introduced to the wonderment of film as a kid. Uh, my dad used to make like backyard home movies on like a Super 8 camera when he was a kid. And when I was young, we did like a screening night one evening. And, you know, they made like B-movie, B like horror films as kids with like Frankenstein meets like the Wolfman type of stuff. And it was the first time I really kind of saw the that you could kind of just go out and do something like that, you know, even in a rough way. And then kind of as I got older, of course, you know, I watched films and stuff. And uh, I started seeing again with my dad, like we would watch films like Back to the Future. And he would point out like the little world building they would do in films. And it sort of piqued my interest a little bit more. And then going into high school, I had a really close friend who was like that was his world was film. And sort of, again, pushed me more into that. And as I found myself writing more, uh, you know, I, I was at a crossroads going into college and, and made the, the call to switch from pharmacology, of all things, to film studies. And after that, I've, I've stuck to it. And I've been working in the industry, you know, pretty much since I graduated in 2012. And uh, it's been an interesting road over all these years working in film and video production. Well, that's kind of interesting. There's a there are a couple of things I want to discuss there. Uh, first of all, pharmacology. That's interesting because when I was in college, I was originally a chemistry major, mm -hmm. and I worked with a pharmacologist, and I actually wanted to be get this a neuropsychopharmacologist. Oh wow! Yeah, and uh, what that is, it's a big long word that means you study the effects of certain drugs on the mind and behavior. So it's, it's really pretty cool. But what I ended up doing was I went to graduate school in biochemistry. Mm -hmm. So I didn't leave that area completely, but, um, you know, I transitioned into it in the mid nineties and have been there ever since. So it's, that's kind of funny that, uh, <laughs> you know, our name is Hess and we, you know, did the science thing and now filmmaking. So I'm, you know, 
let's see if there's any other parallels. <laughs> exactly. We'll just keep it going. <laughs> so uh, you majored in film in college? Yeah. So right at the start, before I was supposed to have my first semester, I, I switched everything over to film. And then uh, I minored in psych for a little bit, but eventually that kind of went by the wayside. And yeah, so I ended up getting my Bachelor of Science in uh, Electronic Media and Film from Towson University. Oh, very cool. I like that. See, I wanted to go to film school and my roommate in college, uh, my first semester in graduate school, as a matter of fact, was a radio, TV and film major. Oh, cool. And it was so intriguing. And then I ended up having a girlfriend who was a radio, TV and film major. (laughs) (laughs) So it was, uh, I don't know, maybe it was meant to be somehow, but um, Mm -hmm. yeah, I always wanted to go to film school and, and I think it's probably too late now i've already made films and and don't really care to to go back and learn it's it's kind of like going back to school to try and be an actor i don't want to uh, stand in front of another person and make faces or or be a tree and then be a happy tree or whatever (laughs) yeah exactly (laughs) (laughs) so now that we know how you got into filmmaking tell us about the very unusual title of your production company yeah, so the production name came from uh, it's it's a dedication to my cousin uh, Anthony Renacha, who we were really close friends growing up. I mean, he was basically like the older brother I never had, uh, and unfortunately, he was born with cystic fibrosis. So when he was 14, uh, he passed away from it, and it was a huge loss, of course, to the whole family. But it really hit me hard as I was only 10 at the time. And so when it came time to start thinking about my production company, I always, you know, I guess had that more artistic edge to everything I wanted to do. So I wanted it to be more than just like Dan Hess Production or DH Productions. I didn't want my name to be all over it. So I wanted it to be something that could mean a lot more and also something that could help me sort of keep my passions in line because like for me it's one of those things that like whenever I start to like doubt myself or kind of maybe not have as much of a creative spirit in it like having his name there always kind of brings me back around to uh you know wanting to to push that much harder in the field and keep working as hard as I can yeah you know I noticed when I first read your profile, it said to Tony Productions, and I, you know, kept trying to figure out what to Tony meant, or if it was to Tony, or, you know, mm-hmm. if, if there was a, a, a different kind of word. And then I read uh, about you on About Us on your website, and then I got it. It was like, okay, that's that's really very cool. I mean, I'm I'm glad that you have have made that tribute to him. It's it's kind of funny, my family and I, I can't remember why but for some reason my mother always donated money to 65 roses mm-hmm. which is it's kind of a I don't know if it's a, a child said 65 roses because they couldn't say cystic fibrosis but it is the cystic fibrosis foundation uh, where you can donate uh, to cystic fibrosis research so that's a very worthy cause and and um, you know I've known several people who have had children with cystic fibrosis. Sorry, I, I keep wanting to say 65 <laughs> roses because my whole life that's what it's been. So mm-hmm. anyway, I, I definitely appreciate that. So that's very good. Um, you created a film. You directed and wrote, and I believe you were actually the uh, 
director of photography on it. Am I correct? It's My Spirit Will Stay. Yep. Very cool. Tell us about that movie. Yeah, so that movie kind of was born out of a long kind of gestation period, if you will. Um, You know, I made a bunch of short films while I was in college and maybe like the first two years after I gotten out of college. But then there was a long kind of gap between everything. And, you know, what really happened was just kind of life happened and I needed to worry more about financials and getting myself steady in that regard. So, you know, I I did wedding videography for a long time, event videography, and was really just occupied with that kind of as my world. And then finally in, in 2018, you know, I was just kind of frustrated with myself and, you know, also had a recent change in that, you know, I was born with a with a heart condition called aortic valve stenosis. And when I was 27, I had gotten my yearly echocardiogram and they came back and said, well, hey, this isn't looking too hot. Like you're probably going to need surgery in a little while, uh, in a couple years. And that was kind of a scary wake up call ish for me. Like it was, you know, oh man, you know, this is heart surgery. And I know, you know, the progress that has been made in that field is a lot better than it's ever been, but it's still a scary thought that at some point that's going to have to happen. So I just told myself, like, I can't wait on this any longer of just trying to make films again. So, you know, it was born out of just trying to make something happen. So, you know, in November of 2018, I told myself, okay, we're just going to find something that I can make this film out of. I didn't really have a script. I just had kind of a general sense of what I wanted to do. And then within two months, you know, I was ready to go to start shooting. And by January, we started filming. And even that whole process was a, it was a lot of like mountain, climbing mountains for me personally to try to make this film happen. Because there's just so many weird, random obstacles that got in the way leading up to it. And then even throughout the production. Well, I'm glad you did it because it's a a very cool film. And um, I'm sorry to hear about your heart condition, but are you, are you all fixed now from the surgery? Uh, so luckily they've still been able to, to kind of hold off on it you know, I, I go every six months now and the last one I did, uh, late last year, they were still like, you know, it's not great, but we're, we can still hold off. So we'll see in another six months. So when I get that next checkup, uh, I'll be able to find out, you know, how much closer we are to getting that done. Oh, very good. Cause I've actually, strangely enough, known a couple of people with the exact same condition. Oh, wow. So were you... This is a weird question, but were you blue? No, so I was fine. It was weird. I didn't. They didn't find it until uh, I think I was a couple months old. My pediatrician was just listening to my heart and heard the palpitation, and was like, "Yeah, I think that's what this is." And then you know they checked it out, and then yep, that's what it was. Um, But luckily, it's a, it's a really like my case is pretty mild in comparison to a lot of others. So that's why they've been able to hold off as long as they have with doing anything with the valve. Oh, that's good. Well, I, uh, my wife's best friend, I believe she had aortic stenosis, um, and she was blue for most of her life, and they finally fixed it, and she was pink, and everybody was like, oh, my God, you're pink. <laughs> <laughs> so it was kind of kind of interesting. So um, anyway, your film, My Spirit Will Stay, what's kind of the flavor of the film? And I've seen it. I've probably watched it through three times or so and then watched more bits of it. Um, what is your take or your delivery on, on the film? Yeah. So, 
the you know the film is really about someone feeling lost in kind of the world around them and the character herself is you know it sort of takes like a more mythological approach to it in that you know she is uh kitsune which is in japanese mythology is you know a a nine-tailed fox uh that lives kind of like an indefinite amount of time and so you know there's a lot of layers to the film and and you know i i think i kind of put it out there a little bit but i don't really you know put that she is this character too much so to speak um so for me it was like thinking of a feeling kind of like lost in the world but then amplifying that by someone who's like lived all these different like lifetimes over and over again and sort of at like wit's end with just being you know seeing the same kind of cyclical patterns playing out so it's kind of you know that's the the core of the story but then it's just you know kind of following this non-linear sort of timeline that you know for me doesn't really take place over years but it just takes place you know over different like perspectives of the same sort of events kind of happening and uh you know watching this character sort of like lose herself in different things and sort of have happiness in certain things like you know the scenes in nature there's a lot of like more upbeatness to the film um and things like that so that's sort of my general kind of like gist of it i guess yeah i think um what struck me about it and maybe the reason why i like it so much is one there's not much dialogue and the other thing is the actor emily classen is very good at conveying emotion on film yes and i really i really like that and in fact i want to talk about her a little bit with you if if that's okay Mm -hmm. how did you connect with her so I believe we connected, I want to say it was through, there's like different casting websites that I went to at the time. It was either that or somehow through like an acting uh, group on Facebook. And so we sort of found just through blind luck in that regard. And, you know, as soon as I kind of saw her headshots and everything, I was like, I knew she had the look that I was looking for and she had the background that I liked and was just really eager and open to wanting to just tackle more projects. So what was great was, you know, from the beginning when we started talking, like she instantly sort of connected with the story and with the character and, you know, was willing to just kind of like go above and beyond to, you know, make the film happen. Because, uh, you know, originally the film was supposed to actually have a male and female lead character and it was supposed to be more of a kind of weird, like, love story-ish type of film but the uh the main lead actor that i had on board was a little flaky like about a week before the shoot and i was getting a little nervous so actually uh literally the night before the shoot you know i was messaging him and trying to reach out to him and he wasn't picking up the phone and everything and then finally was just like yeah so you know i don't think i can do it and everything and you know luckily at that point in my mind i had already kind of re you know maneuvered everything to being just a vehicle for just her uh but yeah it was really unfortunate because you know it was supposed to go in kind of a different direction up until that point and then once that happened we everything sort of had to pivot within like a 12-hour span really at at that juncture that's kind of interesting because a similar thing happened to me it must be 15 years ago now Mm -hmm. um i was going to use my niece and uh 
a friend of mine and I think a couple other people who I'd connected with in a short film. And one of the guys didn't show up. I mean, oh, he, just, he just flaked out on me, didn't show up. It's like, dude, we're all here. Uh, we're on set. We're on location. Everybody's ready to go. And he goes, oh, well, I'm kind of sick today. It's like, you should have turned uh, up sooner because, I mean, we were there. And one guy drove, you know, like 40 minutes to be there. And wow. you know, I ended up, um, you know, I ended up paying everybody what I would have paid them ordinarily. I said, sorry, guys. And they go, well, why don't you play the guy? I go, well, first of all, I'm too old. <laughs> <laughs> too old to play this young guy because the girl that the guy was supposed to um, kind of connect up with in the film, mm-hmm. they were supposed to be about the same age. And I was at least 15 years older than uh, my niece. So I didn't want to, you know, make a pervy film out of it. But yeah, exactly. So, I mean, they, uh, they weren't, you know, going to, it was just a brief connection. It was basically uh, just a couple of looks, but I still didn't want it to be weird. So, I said, no, I'd rather not do it. And I've never made that film. And unfortunately, I mean, maybe I will since I'm in a new location. Maybe I'll get people together and, and do it again. But, yeah, um, true. you know, uh, Emily Classen, I've actually seen her in something else. And she's very intriguing and very good on film. She she fills the frame, as we say. And mm-hmm. uh, I really like her camera presence. I would love to work with her. But um one of the things I've noticed about women like Emily in independent films, they have to be, and she exudes confidence on film. And I'm sure that's why you wonder, like you said, after you saw her look and everything, um, she has a great amount of confidence and women in independent film to me have to have a great amount of confidence because we often show them. And I'm sure you would agree in a very unglamorous light. Yeah. You know, they're not always dressed to the nines. They're not always in flattering clothing. I mean, independent film puts people in uncomfortable and awkward and unflattering positions at times. And you have to have uh, a presence about you and a confidence about yourself that really comes across. And and she, man, she nails it. And mm-hmm. I want to tell you something else. I'm glad the guy didn't show up. <laughs> because I think it would have complicated the film and I liked just having her, you know? Yeah. No, so, I, I agree with that. Yeah. Maybe I'm taking your film too personally, but I really loved it and I thought it worked <laughs> and um, I, I thought she did an incredible job. I was like, man, uh, this, it, it's just perfect. Her, her presence is just absolutely spot on. So, I mean, that's hard to find someone who is mm-hmm. really good on camera and, you know, so many times in independent films, especially very low budget ones, the acting can seem sort of campy and uncomfortable. Yes. And man, she is, she's top notch, man. I don't know. Um, that's why I wanted to know how you connected with her because, um, she's really, really good. So I'm, I'm very impressed with, with both of you and and your work. Thank you. I appreciate that. Um, let me ask you at this point, which filmmakers now you went to film school. So which, mm-hmm. which filmmakers do you consider to be sort of your inspiration or the, the people who you, you look at their films and you go, Oh man, I want to direct like that or produce like that. Well, for me, I mean the, the original like filmmaker that really struck me when I was in film school uh, and my undergraduate studies was uh, Jean-Luc Godard and the whole French new wave film movement in general 
um, it was just so bold and just they're trying so many different things with what they wanted to do with film and they were just brazen you know they just they didn't care about breaking the fourth wall they didn't care about you know story beats that sort of didn't really interconnect in the best ways it was just a very interesting time of film and you know when I was introduced to it in film school I was just like wow like this is this is like really cool this is stuff that I didn't even know was a thing you know up until this point Um, because you know I was raised in mainly just kind of American you know blockbuster type of movies growing up and you know so I was never really into the indie scene too much until really you know, my later teen years. And even then it was kind of a light, you know, like films like Juno and stuff like that, that would sort of be like still kind of a wide release. Um, so that was kind of like my first filmmaker that I really started looking up to. And then as I've gotten older, you know, in the past like year, year and a half, I've really gotten a lot into Yasuhiro Uzu films. Um, he's a Japanese filmmaker who worked you know, before before the new wave movement, so you're talking like he was still doing stuff in the silent era and throughout after that. Um, and his films are completely radically different. They're very slow, methodical. They're slices of life type films that usually just is about, you know, families being connected and kind of these different layers of like family dynamics and stuff. And, you know, it's he's a filmmaker that a lot of people kind of see as like more, I guess, boring. But I find that kind of slice of life really like filtering into a small scale type of thing very interesting. And I think his really locked down camera style I like too because, you know, again, as I've gotten older, I've sort of wanted to move more away from that, you know, handheld camera type of stuff to a more rigid, you know, set down type of camera or if I'm going to move like I want to have you know dollies set up and very methodically paced things so I've found it kind of very attracting to watch films that you know are made in that way because I find it actually harder than when you're making something that's you know handheld because you have to think about how the movement is going to interact in a frame that is not moving so it it makes you really think about the blocking and what the actors are doing more so than you probably would when you're going handheld because you can sort of interact with the characters uh, as the action sort of goes. It's funny that you mentioned French New Wave because I love Jean-Luc Godard and, and his <laughs> films and uh, his wife, Anna Karina, mm-hmm. um, just absolutely. I'm, you talk about a, a, a camera presence. Yes. Uh, she was just awesome. And, you know, like I said, she had, um, you know, some very uncomfortable situations in his films and, you know, some were humorous, but her confidence in front of the camera was just, I mean, unmatched. She's very mm-hmm. good. I love that. And um, I like, you know, when you talk about movement, because, you know, his films weren't dialogue driven, just like yours wasn't dialogue driven. It's mm-hmm. movement driven, you know, it's emotion and movement and I really like that. I think we rely too much on dialogue to drive a story rather than movement and emotion and, you know, the physicality of, of doing something. So, um, yeah, I totally agree with that. Yeah, that's very cool. I, I really love the French New Wave and, and uh, Godard and, and um, some of the others who, who really made an impact 
on me and and my style of filmmaking. I think that's I think that's really kind of fun. Yeah. So, which films in particular do you kind of point to as your guiding lights? Um. So you know, I I sit down with so many films. It's it's a little difficult to really nail a few down. I mean, for if we're talking Godard, I mean, of course, there's Breathless. Uh, I love uh, Un Femme Est Un Femme is a great one. Um, Masculine Feminine, uh, Alphaville, like those are all some top ones in my mind for Godard. Um, for Ozu, like I really like Tokyo Story, uh, you know. And then one of my sort of early introductions to like a film that I can still point to is an actually an animated film called Grave of the Fireflies, which was an Isao Takahata film who works with who well before he passed away he worked with Studio Ghibli which is of course you know Hayao Miyazaki and his films too uh and that was sort of the first film that I can point to in my adult life or I guess as I got into adult life because I watched it when I was around I think 19 or 20 for the first time um and I mean it made me ball my eyes out like I'd never I you know I'd watch sad movies up until that point but I'd never watched a movie that had that much emotionality that made me sort of feel that way about something after I watched it. So for me that was another one of those like seminal films that like you know I always told myself like if I could achieve like something that powerful that you can watch it and I mean every time I watch it I cry like there's just you just can't get around that that brutal like story that's told but it's told beautifully. Um, and it's always been sort of, I guess, a bar for me personally. Like if I can ever accomplish all of that in a film, like I'd be very, very happy with myself. <laughs> yeah. There are films like that for me as well. Uh, Somewhere in time is like that starring um, uh, Christopher Reeve and, um, and gosh, her name um, just escapes me. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, I don't think I've seen that one. Oh, it's really good. Christopher Reeve and gosh, what's her name? Um, Jane Seymour. Can't believe oh, okay. I forgot that because <laughs> I love <laughs> Jane Seymour. But um, yeah, it's it's filmed on Mackinac Island in Michigan oh, okay. at that at that old hotel. And you know, there's some interesting things. It's a that's a great location because they don't allow any cars on that island. Mm-hmm. And I mean, and there's just so many things about it that's that are cool. And it's you know, it's a period piece set in the like 1920s, I believe. Oh, cool. And, yeah, he goes back in time. I don't want to spoil it for you, but it's a <laughs> super cool film. And um, man, just the music and and everything. Just uh, I just sit there and just ball the whole time. It's like, <laughs> oh my god, I can't believe this. It's like the perfect film for some reason for me. Nice. But, yeah, so I understand completely about having an emotional connection with a, a film and, and characters. Mm-hmm. So are you in the Baltimore area there? Are you involved in any film groups, meetups, or other film-related activities? Uh, well, you know, it's, it's it's kind of unfortunate. I mean, there's definitely a, a community here of, of filmmakers and things like that. But, you know, personally, I'm not super involved with a lot of it. I mean, over the years, I've definitely tried to get into the different sort of things that they have going on but a lot of it is so kind of disjointed and like disconnected that uh you know it's hard to kind of figure out where to sort of go with yourself in this area i mean you know a couple years ago of course we had veep was filming here for a while and then of course we had house of cards for a while 
Um, but as those, you know, programs have sort of gone away and then we've sort of walked back on the tax credit that we were offering here, uh, a lot of like the, we don't really have too many big productions that sort of unite the communities uh, like those shows were doing for a little bit there. Um, so it's an interesting time because it's really, you know, the scene is more focused on just the, the corporate video side or the event video side. Or, you know, in D.C., of course, you have all the news outlets, video side of things. Um, so as far as creative, I feel like, you know, there's a scene here, but it just feels like it's a little kind of islanded out, so to speak. Um, so, you know, I'm always trying to, like, keep keep my ear to the ground and sort of see what's happening. But it's just been a lot of, like, few and far between for things. Yeah, I get that. Um, <clears throat> when I was in Oklahoma, I tried to connect up with other filmmakers and it's really tough everybody mm -hmm. kind of works in a vacuum it seems I mean, even exactly. when there's not a pandemic <laughs> yep so i don't know i don't know why filmmakers don't connect more and and share more and do things like that um you know writers typically do writers you know have write you know meetup groups and you know workshops and stuff but it seems like filmmakers i don't know i don't think it's a competitive thing i'm just not sure what it is well i mean i think from what i've seen a lot of people that i'll meet uh are, are kind of worried about that sort of stuff like almost you know if i tell you what i'm thinking you're just going to kind of steal that from me sort of mentality which is interesting because like in film school you know especially in my screenwriting classes the teachers would always say like share your work with everybody you want to get feedback you want to get ideas and you know sure there might be a person that wants to come along and maybe try to steal something that you have but like you're the one who has the whole thing in your mind even if they steal one element of something that doesn't mean that they're going to write the same exact story as you uh you could have two people sitting at exactly the same spot and they'll write two different stories based off of one thing so you know, I always try to go into it with that mentality, but I have come across a lot of people who feel like they have to sort of keep everything internalized uh, because they just worry that like any kind of, you know, stuff that might go out in the air, it's just somebody's going to pick up on it and surpass them or something like that. So I think, you know, for some people, it is kind of like this innate competitiveness. Um, but yeah, with the writing stuff, it's interesting because, you know, uh, since I recently kind of did my self-publishing thing with my book it's been fascinating because you know i did that in january and it's only march now and i found that the community like behind the writing scene has been uh, like enormously like more quickly adapting to like you know this person who just put out his first thing you know i'm already kind of getting like uh virtual events booked and like getting the book into different bookstores and connecting with a lot of different people who are also doing writing projects and stuff so yeah it is weird that like i didn't realize it would be that much of a flip side to it but here i am like sitting there seeing exactly what you're kind of talking about yeah it's i guess you're right i, I hadn't thought about that but you're right people do keep their cards close to their chest i guess you know when it comes to mm -hmm. their ideas and stuff but it's just weird how filmmakers don't really share like i think we should you know i've i've tried to get uh filmmaking groups started with you know meetup.com i've tried to start uh photography things you know where you go walk around with cameras and and take pictures and things and and nobody seems like nobody wants to do it now i haven't tried here in north carolina but uh, i can tell you for sure in, in tulsa 
I had no luck whatsoever connecting Jeez. with other people. <laughs> yeah, it's, it's it seems like only like the big markets because like if you go out to an LA type of thing, like I hear about that all the time, or even in New York, like these people that all just, you know, I guess because they realize that you know as it is, these areas are so hard to kind of tap into anyway. So they do; they'll all have these like meetups or you know make these like films in a couple days to sort of have something for their demo reels and stuff like that so it's weird how like you'd think in an in, in those bigger markets it would be even more so that th- that way but it's actually quite the opposite it seems yeah you know i want to go back to a time and a place where you know like the the avant-garde people of the west village in new york city where they would you know, kind of all hang together and make films together and Mm -hmm. show their films to each other and, you know, start all these little art house uh, projects. And uh, that's the kind of vibe I want. And I just, I don't know how to get that started and get other people involved because, man, that's what I want. I want to, um, I want to have that same kind of feel, you know, I want to hang out with other filmmakers and writers and photographers and artists. And I just, I can't seem to make it happen. I don't know if it's the wrong time in life or the wrong place or, or what, but um, now that I'm in a new place, maybe I'll try again. I'm, I'm told that this area around uh, New Bern, North Carolina is more art oriented. So maybe I'll try again and, and see if I can cook something up. <laughs> you just, all you need is a, an old flop house somewhere and then just, you know, start having parties. And next thing you know, you'll, you'll have a art scene on your hands. <laughs> yeah, there you go. That's what I need. I need a, uh-huh. a, a bunch of deadbeats. <laughs> <laughs> I want the beat generation, not the deadbeat generation. <laughs> so you get involved in festivals, either as a participant or a director? Um, so, you know, with, with the film, my spirit will stay, of course, it, you know, it went to a couple of different festivals and stuff. Uh, so I try to, I mean, you know, websites like film freeway are great in that, like, you know, you can just connect with a million different film festivals if you want to. Um, so like the weirdest thing was, you know, when I first sent it out, uh, I'd sent it out to this festival, which it has such a long name. I can't even remember how to say it all, but it was, basically an art house festival that they had every like a month-to-month basis and I want to say it was somewhere I think in India of all places um and the version of the film that I'd sent to that was actually the the extended one which you know the the one that's online is sort of the the 20 25 minute one but originally there was like an 80 I think it was like an 80 minute cut of the film um that was much much longer and I made it much much intentionally more uh i guess frustrating to watch you know the the voiceover that i had in the original cut was of course in japanese uh but it was also backwards so literally the only way you could decipher anything is a if you knew japanese and b you'd have to watch the film backwards which meant you'd have to figure out how to watch it and then rewind it in order to get that info so my original approach is really making it as sort of frustrating as possible for an audience member and as like you know, hard to get into because at that time, you know, I'd seen so many different media programs that were like so littered with like pop culture references and all these things that I was like, what if I just made this like film that was so dense with just like little details that like you'd have to really, really be able to decode a lot of different things in order to get the story itself, like not even making the story accessible behind all those barriers. So, 
you know, making a long story short, I sent it out to this festival and that extended version. And then that was the time when it won audience choice at that, at that monthly festival, which I thought was fascinating. Cause I was like, here I am making this film that I was intentionally making a hard watch and a frustrating watch for audience members in its length and its, you know, decoding that you needed to do. And then it, it won that month for the audience choice award. <laughs> Oh, that's really cool. I like that. In fact, I was just thinking as you were describing it, it feels kind of like the escape room of films, you know, mm-hmm. where you have to solve all this stuff to, to enjoy it. And um, hey, maybe that's a good topic for a film. People who won't share anything is, <laughs> um, you know, make a, a film about an escape room or make a, an escape room style film uh, you where go. you have to solve something to to be able to watch it or decipher it i, I that might be a, a pretty cool idea yeah well, that's kind of cool yeah i'm involved with um, a film festival um i last year was the first year uh, this year is the second year of the experimental film fest mm-hmm. and um you know so far i think i have about 74 submissions oh wow uh, yeah so uh, last year we had 87 but that was total and this year i mean we I just had my first deadline, which was the March 15th deadline. So, you know, I'm, uh, it, I stopped taking submissions mid July. So I'm hoping everybody who wants to enter does. And, um, you know, I had to limit it this year to 15 minutes. I say 15 minutes ish, you know, I actually allow films up to 20 minutes to, to submit, um, Mm -hmm. which, you know, that's a good question for you. I know you've made a lot of commercial films and you've made uh, independent films do you think there's kind of a sweet spot for a length well it's it's funny because more recently i've started uh doing short film reviews like through my blog and then i actually recently started working with this uh online magazine called frame light that does short film reviews as well and just through this you know, few weeks that I've been doing it and watching these different films. For me, I think the sweet spot is really like, you know, if you're going to do a short film, I really enjoy like 10 minutes and under, I think is sort of like, if you're going to max, it's about 10 minutes. Cause I think like, you know, when I go to sit down to watch these different short films, I get sent at this point, you know, when I see anything, like when I see a half hour short film, like, especially like, I'm just like, Oh, that's kind of a big barrier for me to really, time commit right now and and sit down to it but like you know 15 minutes yeah i'd say that's about like the cusp but if you have like a solid thought for like a short film and you can like keep it 10 minutes or maybe even a little bit less than that i think that's sort of like a really good area to have it in but you know i say that with a grain of salt because I've, i've sat through like 15 to 20 minute short films that i've been like didn't feel like that because they're just so dense with stuff. And then I sat down with like eight minute films that felt like the longest slog ever because the content was just really not there as unfortunate as that can be sometimes. You're listening to the experimental film podcast with Ken Hess. And now back to the show. I think you're right. I think 10 minutes is about the limit someone should really spend on a short film unless you have a very impactful or intriguing story like you were saying i I think that's uh that is really a good sweet spot it's about 10 minutes i really like um somewhere between two and six minutes for me Uh, in my films that seems like that's where i go but i do have one that's 
10 and a half minutes. So, you know, um, it kind of, it just runs the gamut. It just depends, you know, like yeah. everything else. Um, which brings up a, a good question too, because you've done commercial films. Um, I have this theory. Now this is just a purely pet peeve. This is not experimental in any way. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I don't think that people who have a business, let's say that you have a business where you sell clothes. Okay. Mm-hmm. You should never do your own commercials. They just come up campy. I think that you should always have professional actors do the, you know, voiceovers. I think you should have professional actors do the on-camera stuff. Because to me, when I see somebody struggling through dialogue or whatever on their commercial, it's like, oh my God, this is so campy and small townish, I guess. (laughs) Yeah, I, I wholeheartedly agree with that. I think as much as you can, it's like anything else, as much as you can, if you can have a talent that that is their specialty, then like for sure have them do that. Because yeah, it, you know, I've met some people that like can can direct and act, but it's a very rare combination, and it's you know often super hard to do. Um, but yeah, if you can if you can have someone that specializes in that, it's like you know when I did this short film, it was you know I did the the director of photography stuff, but you know after that experience I was like I can make it happen but like I don't think I ever want to try to do that again because I'm decent at it but I know a million people that are much better than I am and if that's one less thing for me to have to struggle with then like I'll always sort of take that over uh you know just trying to make it all happen myself yeah you know there was um an attorney firm there in Tulsa and they had a commercial and it was the worst commercial I think I'd ever seen. And, you know, they because they put the actual people who mm-hmm. were in the law office in the commercial and it was just it was just terrible. It was like, man, don't 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 do that. You know, don't have the people in the business do their own commercials because it just comes off terrible. And I don't know whether it was the filmmaker who made it extra terrible or what, but they did a second one. And because that first one ran for a few years, they, they redid a commercial and it was just as bad. It was like, oh my gosh, when the people saw this, did they not go, this is a terrible commercial. We shouldn't, we shouldn't be on it. We need to pay, you know, whatever it is we need to pay to get a professional spokesperson and a, you know, someone on camera to do this. So it's just kind of embarrassing when, when, you know, people want to do their own commercials to me, it just kind of comes off with a little campiness and maybe that's what they're going for but oh it's just it's cringy <laughs> oh yeah i we we get to up in baltimore we get the bad car commercials up here um and i can even remember one when i was a kid that was a send-up of psycho it was like the end of psycho when they see like the the mom is like the skeleton or whatever and uh it was just they had like the people who ran like the car dealership in this commercial and it was just i can remember like this like very awfully modulated sound of someone like yelling and then it just being like the guy who ran the car thing and he was just like really stiff acting it was all just abysmal but uh yeah that's that's sort of our calling card up here we get all these really bad local car dealership commercials where they do exactly that it's just like whoever's running it and there's just no acting ability there whatsoever yeah there was um car commercials were a a big thing in tulsa and a lot of them were pretty terrible. There was one with a family and the daughter and son did the commercials most often. And 
they were pretty good on camera. They were comfortable and, and you know, they, they looked okay, but I don't know. It just got a little old seeing them all the time. It's like, okay, mm-hmm. you, you probably just should hire somebody to, to do this because it just gets, I don't know, it, it gets a little... Well, yeah, because they'll, they'll, they'll run them to death too. That's the other thing. You'll see them 8,000 times in like two weeks. <laughs> yeah. It feels like... Yeah, they used to have some terrible, terrible local car commercials there. And I just, oh, it's just cringe. And, and furniture commercials, it seems like whoever mm-hmm. makes commercials there locally either has a very bad sense of humor or they just aren't very good at what they do. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. But anyway, um, what are you working on right now, if you can tell us? Yeah, so right now, I actually, last year I wrote uh, my first my first real feature film script with, uh, you know, I, once the COVID stuff sort of happened, uh, you know, my schedule for 2020, like so many others sort of totally changed overnight. And I realized I had this extra time on my hands and I said, you know, okay, I got to really just discipline and sit down and write this script. Uh, so I, I wrote it, uh, and I just finished it this past December after kind of many drafts and sending it out for a lot of feedback to a couple of different websites that are really good with that sort of thing. Um, and now I'm in the, I want to do it right. So I have, you know, my pitch all set up. I have my pitch deck all made, uh, budget in mind and everything. And, you know, that's the next step is working to try to find producers and everything. And then of course, raise funds and all that. Um, and actually this coming Sunday, uh, signed up with a festival called movie expo and you get to sit down with three different producers of course this is all virtually uh and you get to do a 10 minute pitch which each of those three producers and there is the possibility that they will they could option the script or maybe want to try to produce the script so uh that's my next step i'm sort of nervous as anything about it but hopefully fingers crossed it all goes well on sunday and at the very least i'll get some good feedback to keep moving forward to try to get the movie made oh, i like that i <clears throat> have not tried very hard to ever get funding for a film project but uh, i can imagine that's kind of the a slice of hell that i don't really want to get involved in <laughs> I don't, I don't like fundraising and I don't like asking people for money. Um, I wish I could win a lottery so I'd never have to, to even think about that sort of thing. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I know. I feel, I feel the same way. Um, that's why, you know, I'm hoping that with the finding the producers and stuff, you know, they can of course take more of that role and everything. Um, but you know, when I, when I look at the film and I think about it, like I can see, I can see where I can make it for like a really minuscule budget, but I can also see where I can make it where it could, you know, get picked up by a pretty good distributor. Of course, like the dream distributor would be like an A24 type of company. Um, but I could even see, you know, with the budget that I have in mind, you know, a Netflix or an Amazon Prime, uh, you know, all of those type of things, I could see it getting picked up with that. But I think that's really what I've learned over the last like year and a half is really the difference maker. It's just like when you go into these festivals and you have this uh, really well-polished looking product, it's just, I mean, it's just like anything else in life. It sort of makes all the world a difference for distributors that are looking at these different films because, you know, they can just tell like, okay, there's a, you know, a chunk of budget that really went into this look and the feel of this film. Um, 
and you know even before then i think you know from what i've been learning there's there's a dance of talking to distributors before the you even start shooting in some cases with uh some of these indie films so it's it's been an interesting learning experience to sort of see the behind the scenes of how these things sort of shake out um as far as like who you end up getting behind your film uh in the producer world and then who you kind of can connect to in the distributor world to sort of make traction before you even make the film and then while you're in your festival run uh because you know these are how these films get like bidding wars between different distributors and you can really kind of take your pick on who you want to actually put your film out there into the world so it's a it's a cool world it's different and one that i don't know if i'm gonna love or hate but uh, i've been learning a lot about it and it's been really kind of an interesting dynamic yeah distribution is a a big pain we were actually signed up when i was going to uh help create a feature length film based on a novel. Mm-hmm. Um, we were going to use distributor and then, then it went out of business. Oh, I was like, okay. Oh my gosh, that's devastating because it was, yeah. it was kind of like the anchor FM of uh, film. You know, it was like a, a place that would take your film and then place it in all these other venues, you know, uh, Amazon or Netflix or whatever you wanted to pay for. Mm-hmm. And it was great, but uh, beware. There's a lot of, distribution scams out there so yes I, I i've seen i've heard from friends and stuff like that and i've seen cases over the years so yeah i definitely am like keeping myself privy to all that that's why i'm you know my thought with this whole project is to really bring on as many experienced people as i can because you know being my first time through this rodeo i know i'm not privy to all of it so i'm trying to kind of you know, align myself with as many good experienced people who have like a good track record as possible. Because I mean, that's the other way you kind of went out because I think there has been a lot of people that, you know, even after they get good financing, get a good team together, you know, if that distribution part does get like screwed up one way or the other, it can, you know, ruin all of that traction, no matter how good the film is. Um, And that can really have like a pretty nasty impact on like where your kind of career moves from there. Yeah, it's unfortunate, but um, I just wish there were an easier way. It seems like the barriers mm-hmm. used to be a little bit lower to getting into things like Netflix and Amazon Prime. It seems like they've kind of started weeding out, um, you know, potentially very good content. And I'm I'm kind of bummed about that. I wish there was another outlet for independent film that wasn't all gated like it is yeah. now. You know, and maybe maybe that's what I'll do. Maybe I'll try and come up with something like that. Cause I think there's lots of creative people out there, lots of people with great ideas and great stories and great films that, you know, either don't have the money, don't have the connections or, you know, don't have whatever is needed to get their films in front of audiences. I know there's a filmmakers co-op in New York and there's also Canyon cinema in San Francisco who do a great job of putting films in front of people. And, um, you know, those are great, but I mean, like a, like a Netflix channel or something where you can really have good independent film, almost like a a criterion channel that I watch a lot where, Mm -hmm. you know, where you have, you know, low budget, no budget, independent films, uh, you know, that, that can reach an audience and and people I think would pay uh, a subscription for those to, to watch them. Cause I think there's, like I said, a lot of good content that's being wasted because we don't have a way to get it out there. And it, I don't know, it's, it's unfortunate. 
Yeah, I mean, I I completely agree. And, you know, like I'd mentioned before, I, you know, I've been having a lot of success doing this like review stuff on my blog. Um, but that came out of honestly, like the experience I had with My Spirit Will Stay, especially where I had this film that I finished and I didn't know what to do with it besides just send it to festivals. And outside of that, I was just like, you know, how do I market this thing? And so I really thought about that, you know, actually just last month, it kind of hit me again. And I realized like, well, you know, maybe there just needs to be an easier barrier of entry for a lot of these like indie filmmakers, because, you know, there's what I've noticed is there's indie film and then there's indie indie film. And there's a big difference between the two. And I've I've been lucky that like, you know, I've already think I've done like somewhere around like 50 to 60 like short film and a few like feature length super indie films that I've reviewed on the blog site so far um but that's because there's just uh, that's the issue and like some people have come to me after I write these reviews and they're like hey do you know like any other places I can send this to or anything and I'm like that's the thing like that's kind of why I started this because honestly I really don't know too many places where you can just sort of say hey I made this little film can you review it for me or do some like marketing stuff for me? Um, and that's sort of why I created the the review section of the blog in the first place. Cause I think there is something to that and what you're saying too, it's just there, I don't think there's a home for that. And, and, you know, for me, hopefully just through this blog stuff, I can create a little bit of a home for it, but I think there is something of a potential for like somebody to come along that can just create like a criterion type of channel um, that just streams all of these different well-made short films. Cause I've seen some stuff that has blown me away to this point, um, that I'm shocked, you know, it isn't on like a bigger scale. Cause I'm like, man, like your team, you, you guys created like something so phenomenal. And it's just a shame that like so many people have the struggle of trying to market that sort of stuff. Yeah. What you're talking about, I think is underground film. Yeah. And I really love underground film. I think like a, like we were talking about earlier, you know, getting a collective of people together who, you know, want to um, review and promote and help with, with film. I don't know. Maybe this podcast can be the jumping off point for that. Maybe um, we can, you know, maybe the, the Hess boys together can, <laughs> can actually stir up some, some interest in this and, and we can actually do that because, uh, I think there's a real need. There's been a need for years and years, you know, for people to uh, get out in front of an audience. And I don't know, maybe we can make that happen. We'll have to discuss it offline sometime. Yeah, I, I totally agree. I mean, you know, going back to the French New Wave, I mean, I think a lot of people don't realize that, like, you know, that was born out of Cahir du Cinema, which was they all reviewed movies. And, uh, you know, Truffaut was the first one to sort of come out of just doing reviews to then making his film. But that was how they studied, because, I mean, this was before, you know, a lot of the major film schools were out there. So that was their film school. But I think that's sort of how these things are built out is just like you have to get this sort of like minded collective who all kind of look at films first. And I think it always starts with that, like really studying films as a whole and writing reviews and really learning from them. And then that's how you create differences because you kind of see what is out there and what is getting repeated. And you, you learn to sort of work against the grain in a way. Um, and I think all the big like kind of film movements that have happened over the course of history are sort of born out of that. Like 
really studying things and saying, okay, how can we sort of upend what's going on right now and sort of put our own voice into it that's unique and different from what is kind of out there already? Yeah, I agree. Um, you know, I'm I'm pretty excited about the uh, the prospect of this, really. But um, anyway, we should probably wrap up. We've been on for about an hour. But let me uh, ask you, do you have a website or other ways for the audience to check out your work and get involved? Yeah, so uh, the website would be twotonyproductions.com, and that's T-O-T-O-N-Y productions.com. Uh, that's sort of the the hub for everything. So from there, you can sort of see my previous work. Uh, you can check out the blog, which has all the reviews. Uh, there's even sections for the, the writing that I've been doing and everything. So that's sort of what I always kind of direct people to because it's like the, the one-stop shop to sort of get connected to all of my stuff. And then, you know, of course, on the social channels, they're all on the website as well. Very cool. Well, I'll tell you, this has been one of the the most interesting interviews I've ever done for this podcast. Well, I'm, I'm glad we could connect and I'm glad I could come on. This has been really great. It's uh it's been a, a good, good chat. I like yeah, it. I appreciate it. And Hey, feel free to send uh, any of your experimental filmmakers or underground filmmakers my way. I'd be glad to interview them and, and help promote what they do. Yeah, I've actually come across quite a few experimental short films over the past couple of weeks. So I'll go through the blog and, uh, send over some names or try to get the emails CC'd up so you can connect. Oh, very cool. Well, I really appreciate you coming on today, Daniel. This has been great. No, I appreciate you having me. It's, it's been a pleasure, and uh, I look forward to, to chatting more and, and making this uh, this underground vision come, come to life. Yeah, there you go. And thank you for joining us for this third episode of Season 2 of the Experimental Film Podcast. Our guest today was filmmaker Daniel Hess. Please contact me if you'd like to schedule an interview, sponsor the podcast, or point me to some cool experimental films. And we'll see you next time. If you would like to sponsor a podcast or schedule an interview, send an email to ken at experimentalfilm.info. Thanks for listening to the Experimental Film Podcast with Ken Hess. Thank you.